So the first of the two passages this evening comes from John 15, 1 to 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete." And the second reading this evening comes from Luke 10, 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Uni Church, I have a confession to share with you. This is a safe space, right? I can share this. I am something of a plant hoarder. I think it peaked during lockdown, when I think I counted and I had about 80 plants in my house. Yep, that's them there. Uh, There's something I find really comforting about looking after plants. I love the routine and the way that they grow and change. I love that they reward my watering and my fertilizing with new growth. Uh, When my husband John and I moved house a couple of years ago, the first thing we moved in was my plants. That's them there taking over the kitchen. We did this mostly because I didn't trust our movers to handle my plants with the care that they really deserved. Um, Usually they're spread out all over the house, but here they were all together, and I think it was in this moment I looked at them all and I was like, do I have a problem? Is this normal? Anyway, I I share all of this um, with you because I think that my love slash obsession with plants has helped give me a really deep appreciation for the picture that Jesus gives us of what it looks like to be one of his disciples. In our first passage tonight, Jesus uses the image of a vine and a branch to describe what it looks like to grow and thrive as a follower of Jesus. And the thing about plants is, you know when they're healthy and thriving. You know when they're loving life and you also know when they're dying. Look at these two plants here. It's not hard to tell which is healthy and which one isn't. So whether you're a proud plant parent like me or you've killed every single plant you've ever owned, come with me as we dive into this passage and learn what it looks like to be a thriving disciple of Jesus. 
I'm going to make three observations uh, about this picture of the vine and the branches, and then we're going to talk about three practices that help us live this out. So the first observation that I want to make is that Jesus is our source of life as disciples. Look with me in verse 4. Jesus says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Then look with me at the very next verse. Jesus repeats this, saying, If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't try and live as followers of Jesus without being deeply and intimately connected with him. It's like trying to turn on a lamp that's not connected to the power. We can't be disciples of Jesus if we're not connected to Jesus. Later on, we'll look at practices that help us do that in the life of our discipleship. The same image of the vine helps us understand the consequences of being disconnected to Jesus. In verse six, he says, if I do not remain in you, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. In caring for hundreds of plants over the years, one thing I know for sure is that if you were to cut a branch or a section of stem off of the main vine, it would wither and die. As disciples of Jesus, it is Jesus himself who is our life source. We can't make it without him. We can't survive, let alone thrive and grow and bear fruit without him. So our lives as disciples need to be centered around our connection and relationship with Jesus. The second observation I want to make is that the relationship between the vine and the branches is reciprocal but asymmetrical. So Jesus repeats himself when he says this as well. So let's listen in. Again at verse 4, in verse 4 he says, Remain in me and I also remain in you. Verse five, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Come down to verse nine with me. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Notice that the relationship between the vine and the branches is not one way. There's a reciprocity, a two-way shape to this relationship. Where to remain in Jesus as Jesus remains in us. And like any relationship, we need to be investing time and energy into making it work. We wouldn't expect a friendship with someone that we never spoke to, never saw, never thought about to be healthy and thriving. And it's the same with our relationship with Jesus. Discipleship is a two-way street. But notice as well that the relationship is not symmetrical. This is not a 50-50 give and take scenario. In verse five, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus is Jesus, and we are his disciples. We're not to lose sight of who it is that makes us disciples. Remember back to last week when John was talking about the calling of the first disciples. Remember that it's Jesus who comes up to Simon and Andrew and James and John as they're fishing, and he says to them, come, follow me. Jesus initiates our discipleship by inviting us to follow him. When I'm taking care of my plants, I'm the one that's doing the watering. I'm the one that fertilizes, that prunes, that repots when they need it. And my plants on their part, they absorb the water and the nutrients from the soil. 
but they're not doing the watering or the fertilizing or the repotting. So discipleship is a two-way street. We remain in Jesus as he remains in us. It's not a symmetrical relationship though. Jesus initiates our discipleship, and as we saw earlier, Jesus is the life source for our discipleship. The final observation that I wanna make is that being a disciple of Jesus means abiding in his words, his love, and his commands. We see this in verse seven when Jesus adds to his refrain of remain in me by saying, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Kind of sounds like the second half of that verse is a bit like Jesus is a genie, that he'll do whatever we want. But the first half of the verse tells us that this promise rests on us abiding in Jesus, on remaining in Jesus, and Jesus' words remaining in us. To abide in Jesus' words means that his teachings and his whole pattern of life becomes the pattern of our lives. It means that we take Jesus' words seriously. We know them, we internalize them, we live them out. And so as Jesus' words dwell in us, they'll start changing us. Our heart and our desires will start to be transformed to be like Jesus' heart and Jesus' desires. This passage also tells us that being a disciple of Jesus means remaining in his love. In verse nine, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. How do we do that? Jesus answers in verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Growing and thriving as disciples of Jesus means that we obey his commands, which come from his words, and thus remain in his love. So abiding in Jesus means abiding in his words, his love, and his commands. But how do we abide? What does it look like to remain in Jesus? Tonight, I want us to consider that abiding in Jesus means beholding him and being with him. In short, abiding in Jesus is about enjoying his presence. If you're a Christian here tonight and I asked you how your discipleship to Jesus was going, how would you answer? To use Jesus' metaphor, what kind of branch are you right now? Are you healthy and thriving, producing fruit? Or are you feeling a little spiritually dry? Do you feel intimately connected with Jesus? Or does Jesus feel a little far from you? Do you experience the peace and rest and joy of Jesus daily? Or does Jesus' presence feel scarce in your life? In our discipleship to Jesus, there are particular spiritual practices and habits that help us stay connected with Jesus that help us abide in him as he abides in us so that we can grow and thrive and bear fruit as his disciples. My guess is that most of us who follow Jesus want that. We all wanna be thriving, healthy disciples, but we often struggle with how to make that happen. How do we stay intimately connected with Jesus? How do we abide in him every day? How do we actually enjoy the presence of Jesus? Our second reading in Luke gives us an example of this struggle and this tension, and it also gives us a way forward. So let's turn to that now. 
It's a story that you might know well about two sisters named Mary and Martha and what happens when Jesus comes over. So let's pick it up in verse 38 where it says, Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, I love having people over to my house, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily say that having people over is a super relaxing thing for me to do. Uh, first, we've got to clean up Kevin's toys that are scattered all over the floor. Uh, before we come over, John and I, oh yeah, Kevin is a not uh, my child, it's a dog. Uh, child in my heart though. Um, so before we come over, John, have to, John and I have to do a mad dash around the house um, and basically hide all of the clutter and vacuum up the mess that Kevin has left all over the house. And then after we've tried to hide our mess as best we can, we've got to cook something for dinner. Um, the older I get, the more I realize I'm becoming my mother. Uh, and one of the traits that I've inherited from her is that she has to over-cater every single occasion because the worst thing that could ever happen is that you would run out of food. Um, so naturally, we have to prepare double the amount of food anyway. Um, so as I read this story of Mary and Martha, can you tell who I relate to? I'm 100% without a doubt a Martha. I'd be the one running around with the Dyson. I'd be the one making all the disciples cups of tea. I would be pulling out a three-course dinner out of the oven. I would have probably curated uh, the perfect Dinner with Jesus uh, playlist on Spotify that would be playing. Um, and I know I would be so annoyed that my sister Mary decided to be of no help and was just sitting by Jesus, leaving me to get on with the job of hosting. But what does Jesus say? Look with me at verse 41. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. And what is it that Mary is doing? She's not cooking or cleaning or organizing. She's sitting down at Jesus' feet, listening to what he's saying. This posture of Mary is that of a disciple. To sit at the feet of your rabbi or teacher was a way of showing that you were listening to them and taking in every word they were saying. Mary isn't focused on the preparations and tasks and organizing that's going around Jesus. She's focused on Jesus. And Jesus commends her for this choice. In so many ways, I think we're tempted to be Martha's we live in a culture of doing, of multitasking and maximizing productivity, a culture of life hacks and efficiency, of hustle and achievement. We live in a Martha world. And we might be tempted to look at our own discipleship, our own walk with Jesus in this framework of doing. I've got to tick off my discipleship to-do list, right? Bible reading, tick. Daily prayer, tick. Made it to church, tick. Small group. Tick, done my giving for the month. Tick on that too. But Jesus here reminds Martha and us that we aren't to be worried and upset by many things and only one thing is needed, to sit by Jesus' feet and listen. 
to be in his presence, to listen to his voice, to abide in him. See, discipleship is not primarily a list of stuff to do. Discipleship is about beholding and being with Jesus. To be a disciple is to enjoy the presence of Jesus. So as we explore what kinds of practices help us to do this, to behold with, to behold and be with Jesus, let's remember this. Let's fight the temptation to see this as just another list of things to do and worry about. Instead, let's see them as ways to cultivate habits that help us enjoy Jesus. We're gonna consider three practices of discipleship that help us abide in Jesus. Some people call these spiritual disciplines or practices of discipleship. There are lots of these practices and we don't have time for them all, so I'm gonna speak on three that I think are the most vital for our lives as disciples. And the most important and foundational practice for discipleship to Jesus is hearing his voice. John's gospel tells us that the eternal word of God entered into human history so that we could know God and have relationship with God. God's word is not ultimately a thing, but it's a person. It's Jesus himself, God's word made flesh. The scriptures were written down for us so that we might know Jesus and find salvation in him and learn to live his way. Jesus himself knew the scriptures inside and out. He made direct quotations from the Old Testament more than 70 times. He taught scripture, he prayed scripture, he lived out scripture. When Jesus is tempted by the devil to turn stones into bread after a 40 day fast, Jesus answers him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. A direct quote from Deuteronomy 8.3. Now Jesus doesn't just know that quote, he believed that quote and he lived it out. He lived every day in obedience to the word that comes from the mouth of God. The words of scripture were written down for us. Uh, They're God-breathed, as Paul says in his second letter to Timothy. They come from the mouth of God himself and they tell us everything we need to know about finding salvation in Jesus and living for him. When we read the Bible, we're hearing God speak to us. We're hearing Jesus' voice. And so we wanna be people that know this voice. We wanna be people who are saturated in his words, who go to them daily, who rely on them like we rely on food or water or our phones. And I know what you're thinking, right? It's one of those most cliche uh, sermon applications. Just read your Bible more. Um, So we're gonna go a little bit further and we'll get a little bit more specific. There's two approaches to reading that you can take. There's reading wide and there's reading deep. Reading wide means covering large parts of the Bible, maybe reading several chapters at a time. This is so that we can read all of the Bible eventually. Lots of you may have done a Bible in a year reading plan where you make your way through the whole Bible over the course of the year and that's a really wonderful thing to do because it makes sure that we're reading all of God's word because all of it comes from God's mouth. All of it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Yes, even the Levitical laws, and yes, even the long list of genealogies. All words of scripture come from the mouth of God, 
and every single part has something true and beautiful and essential for us to know and live out as we follow Jesus. I read recently that it would take 70 hours to read the Bible from cover to cover. That's less time than the average person spends watching TV a month. So basically, if you swapped, people swapped their Netflix time for reading the Bible, they would be able to finish the whole Bible in less than a month. If that feels too daunting, if you spent no more than 15 minutes a day reading the Bible, you would finish it in a year's time, or less than a year, actually. Now, I don't say this to shame you or to make you feel guilty, but I do want to show you how possible it is to read all of God's Word. And if you're not a big reader, can I encourage you to tap into the wonder of audio Bibles? You can listen to God's word, literally, uh, in your ears. I mean, it's it's definitely not Jesus' actual voice. I feel like I should say that. Uh, But it is someone else reading his words to you, which is very cool. So it's one thing to read widely, and it's another thing to read deeply. And this is perhaps even more important. When we read God's word, when we listen to Jesus' voice, It's not primarily about learning stuff or downloading information. It's so that it can change us from the inside out. And so we need to read deeply and carefully and slowly to do this. Psalm 1 tells us, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. This blessed person is not someone who rushes through a chapter of Genesis or Ephesians or a psalm in the morning and ticks it off their Bible reading plan and then forgets about it for the rest of the day. No, this blessed person is the one who delights in the word of God, who meditates on it day and night. God's word bounces around their thoughts throughout the day. The blessed person is the one who can't wait to bring up God's word to share it with others, to repeat it to themselves. It's like a catchy song they can't get out of their head. God's word is always at the tip of their tongue and the front of their mind. Don't we wanna be like this blessed person? Don't we wanna be people so saturated in Jesus' words that they spill out of us throughout the day? I know I do. To dwell in God's word in this way means reading it slowly. Maybe you only read a few verses maybe a single verse even. Turn it over in your mind. Think deeply about what it reveals about God's character, about the beauty of the gospel, or how we're supposed to live. Peter Adam shared this really wonderful habit uh, with our preaching class a few weeks ago, which is that he'll pick a verse of scripture and repeat it to himself throughout the day. For example, uh, Romans 12:1 in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So Peter would repeat this verse to himself as he went about his day, so as he brushed his teeth in the morning, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice. As he walked his dog, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice. As he did the grocery shopping, as he prepared his notes for the lecture, as he met up with someone to talk and pray, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Repeating this verse throughout the day helped him continually orient his mind and his heart and his body to seeing everything he did through the day as an expression of this true and proper worship to God. 
How can you hear God's voice throughout the day? How can you let Jesus' words soak into your thoughts and your attitudes and your heart? How can you have Jesus' words ringing in your ears on repeat, day in, day out? We abide in Jesus by hearing Jesus' voice, by reading our Bibles. It is a vital practice in the life of a disciple. The next practice that helps us abide in Jesus is having his ear, that is speaking to God in prayer. As incredible as it is that the God who created the universe speaks to us, it's equally astounding that the same God chooses to listen. And he doesn't just listen begrudgingly, he longs for us to come to him in prayer and he delights in us when we do. Jesus himself lived a life dedicated to prayer. Time and time again in the Gospels, we see Jesus retreating from the crowds in order to pray. At the end of a long day of teaching and healing, Jesus would get away from everyone just to go somewhere on his own to pray. When we pray, we're talking to God, and what we pray reveals a lot about the relationship that we have with God. The Bible tells us that we can cast our worries and anxieties on him because he cares for us. We can be totally honest to God in our prayers, knowing that he cares so deeply for us that he wants to hear what's on our hearts and minds. Even if he already knows what we're going through, he still wants to hear it from us. At its heart, prayer is relational. It's about us relating to God as our Father and giving our anxieties and our worries and our requests to him because he loves us. However, it can become really easy, it can be really easy for our prayer life to become a grocery list of things that we want from God. God, could you give me clarity about this decision I'm making? God, could you give me patience to deal with that really hard person in my life? God, this week is really hard. Could you just give me the energy to get through it? All of these are honest, legitimate requests that we can give to God, and we should go to him for them. But the heart of prayer is not getting things from God, but getting God himself. Christian author David Mathis says, prayer is when we speak back to God in response to his word to us and experience what it means to enjoy him as an end in himself, not just as a means to our petitions. Unichurch, what are your prayers like? Are they mostly requests of things you want from God, or are they also an expression of your joy and delight in God himself? If you wanna shake up your prayer life, you could start by praying the way that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. We did this just before and we do this every week at Uni Church because it models for us how to pray. Uh, there's an entire sermon looking at the Lord's Prayer, so don't worry, I'm not gonna unpack all of it. But you might start by praying through the whole prayer and then using one line as a starting point for your personal prayers. So the Lord's Prayer begins, our Father who is in heaven. God, thank you that you are our Father. Thank you through, that through Jesus you adopted us into your family so that we could call you Father. Thank you for hearing our prayers through your son, Jesus. Help me go into this day with the knowledge that I am a much-loved child of yours 
Help me feel your fatherly presence in my life through the Holy Spirit. Help me abide in your love this day. Amen. Another way to grow in your prayer life is to use the words of scripture. Turn your daily Bible reading into your prayers for that day. Pray in response to what you've read using God's words. Repeat God's words back to him so that they might start changing your heart to be more in line with his. The other great thing about this is that there are so many prayers in scripture. Did you guys know that the original Hebrew title for the Psalms actually means prayers? I learned this the other week, so I'm kind of nerding out on that, but it's so cool. Every, every Psalm is a prayer. So that's 150 prayers ready to go, waiting to be prayed. Uh, there's a fantastic book in our uh, bookstore called Praying with Paul by Don Carson. And in it, Carson goes through the prayers that Paul uh, includes in his letters. And he uses them as a model and example for how we're to pray for others. Uh, Reading this book really profoundly changed the way that I pray for others. Um, So I would really recommend it if you're looking uh, for a way to shake up your prayer life. Uh, These prayers are part of God's word to us. So we know that they are prayers that he wants to hear and prayers that he wants to answer. Another tried and tested way of reinvigorating your prayer life is to listen to the prayers of others. Uh, Tonight, we're primarily thinking about personal habits and practices that help us abide in Jesus, but of course, we do this in community. We do this with other Christians. Next week, we'll be thinking more about how we abide in Jesus as a community, but our brothers and sisters, our fellow disciples, can teach us a lot about how to pray. If there's a Christian you admire, listen to how they pray and what they pray for. Ask them how they build prayer into their daily life and other ways they've cultivated a practice of prayer. Friends, we are disciples who have the ear of Jesus. He wants us to speak with him, to go to him with our thanksgiving, our praise, our confession, and our requests. So let's make the most of this privilege. Let's abide in Jesus by having his ear and by speaking to him in prayer. So we've looked at two uh, foundational practices that help us abide in Jesus. We abide in Jesus by hearing his voice. We abide in Jesus by having his ear. These are practices and habits that help us uh, abide in Jesus so that we might be disciples who grow and thrive and bear fruit, so that we might be branches connected to our true vine who is the source of our life and power and joy. You might be sitting there thinking, well, that is great, but when am I actually going to do these things, right? My life is already so full to the brim, I can't imagine adding two more things to my day. So I briefly now wanna touch on a third practice that is really connected to these two, and that is the practice of silence and solitude of being alone with Jesus. So we've already seen that in Jesus' life and ministry, this is something that he did all the time. Jesus would go out to pray really early in the morning while it was still dark. Or sometimes he'd sneak off late at night and pray until dawn. Jesus spent his days teaching and healing and casting out demons, and he was constantly surrounded by crowds of people You can just imagine just the chaos and the urgency and the desperation that would have been around him all the time. 
And yet again and again, Jesus retreats from these things to be alone. In the Gospels, the place that Jesus would go to be alone is sometimes translated as the desolate place, the wilderness, the quiet place, or the lonely place. But in this lonely place, Jesus was never alone. He was with his Father, one-on-one, to commune, to pray to, to be with, to abide in. I know I like to think that my life is pretty full. I've got essays due, I've got messages to send and reply to, I have sermons to write, I have small group to attend, a dog to walk and feed and clean up after, plants to water, as you've seen, a husband who occasionally requires attention and love, friends to catch up with, reels to scroll through, exercise when I have the energy, podcasts, TV, books, eat, sleep, work, class, rinse, repeat. But as a disciple of Jesus, I need to see abiding in Jesus as the thing that keeps me going to do all these other things. If I'm not abiding in my true vine, I'm a branch that's gonna wither and die. If I'm not connecting with my true vine, the source of my life as a disciple, I'm gonna be a useless branch, unable to bear fruit, unable to grow and thrive. So I need to carve out time to be silent and to be in solitude so that I can abide in Jesus, so that I can hear his voice, so that I can have his ear, so that I can enjoy his presence. Like Martha, I am worried and distracted by so many things. I'm bombarded with different voices in my ears. I'm surrounded by screens and notifications and apps and messages and so much noise. Competes for my time and my energy and my attention. Competes for my heart. When I think back to Jesus' conversation with Martha, I don't hear condemnation in his voice. Did you notice that he repeats her name twice? Martha, Martha. As if Jesus is saying, hey Martha, I see you. Hey Martha, I know you. Jesus does not condemn her, even as he commends Mary for her choice. Instead, Jesus invites Martha to enjoy his life-giving presence. He's reminding her that all that is needed right now is to be with him. Martha, put down your tools, quiet the distractions, and just come and sit with me. Jesus invites me and you into this same life-giving presence today and every day. It's not a duty that we have, but it's a privilege that we have to soak in the goodness of being with Jesus. In some Christian circles, we call this quiet time, I think the phrase can feel a little bit old-fashioned, but I think it's the right idea. We need to mark out some time in our calendar, in our day, just for us and Jesus. Don Carson says that we do not drift into discipled, sorry, we do not drift into disciplined quiet time. We won't grow in prayer or Bible reading if we do not plan to pray and read the Bible. If that sounds daunting to you, just start with 10 minutes. 10 minutes in the morning, maybe you make a cup of coffee and go sit on the couch with your Bible and a pen. Breathe in the quiet stillness of the morning and just abide in Jesus. 
Or maybe you already have an established quiet time in the morning and you relish that time with Jesus to start your day, but then the worries and the stresses and the distractions of the day occupy you and it's hard to keep feeling that connection with Jesus. So maybe you make space for silence and solitude throughout the day, five minutes at a time at set points throughout the day, in between classes or meetings or on the commute home. Resist the urge to just fill your ears with noise and choose to be in silence, to abide with Jesus. Maybe you've already got a regular quiet time happening, so maybe you can aim for longer stretches, a whole day or a weekend, where you get out of your normal environment and just hang out with Jesus, go deep in his word and in prayer. You might even fast over this extended time with Jesus, which is another practice that uh, disciples of Jesus have done for centuries and that Jesus himself practiced. Wherever you are right now, commit to creating space in your life for silence and solitude, to be alone with Jesus. In our world, everything goes a million miles an hour. Our culture finds meaning and value in being the most productive people that we can. We live in in an attention economy, I read the other day that the average human attention span is eight seconds. So if you're still listening, well done. (laughs) But because of all these things, this spiritual practice feels really countercultural. It might even make us feel uncomfortable at the start. It might be really confronting to just sit and be still. But we weren't made for this world, brothers and sisters. With its breakneck pace and obsession with efficiency. No, we were made for Jesus to behold him, to be with him, to abide in him as he abides in us. The ultimate goal of these practices that we've looked at tonight is not about mastering the practices themselves, they're about getting to enjoy Jesus. When we invest in these practices, our goal is not to get good at them. Our goal is to get Jesus. Friends, my hope and prayer for us is that the practices explored tonight would not instill a sense of duty in us. I don't want you to wake up tomorrow morning and think, okay, I've gotta do my duty and open my Bible and say my daily prayer, no. My hope is that they would fill us with a sense of joy and delight. Right at the end of our passage in John, in verse 11, Jesus tells his disciples that the goal of abiding abiding in him is so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus promises us his presence and his joy He says that this joy will be enough for us. It is all we need because the joy of knowing Jesus is what we were made for. He is the one that we were designed to delight in. Brothers and sisters, we get the joy of knowing and enjoying Jesus himself. These practices of uh, reading God's word, of having his ear, of being in silence and solitude with Jesus, these are all ways that we can abide in Jesus so that we can behold him and be with him, and ultimately so that we can enjoy him. Let me pray that we would do that. Lord Jesus, you are our true vine. 
You are the one who gives us life and power and goodness and joy. Thank you for calling us to follow you. Thank you for giving us the gift of your presence so that we can know you, trust you, love you, obey you, and enjoy you. Teach us not to be carried away by distractions and worries and tasks and guide us to sit at your feet and be with you. Give us joy as we practice these habits of discipleship tomorrow and the day after that and for the rest of our lives. Please, Lord, give us the joy of your presence each and every day. Amen.